But today we're going to be in Romans chapter 15, and like I told you before, we're, I'm going to preach two sermons um, this Sunday and week after next, um, both from the book of Romans and both about the church. And the title of the series comes from an ancient Christian statement of beliefs written in the 4th century. It's called the Nicene Creed, and uh, it was first written in the early 4th century, later modified at the First Council of Constantinople in 381, and it's the standard of Christian belief for the past 1,500 years. It closed the door on lots of discussions about the dual nature of Christ being both God and man and separated the orthodox view from the heretical view for all time. Because of that, you believe what you believe about Jesus, that he is God's son, descended from heaven in human flesh, fully God and fully man, because of the pastors who met in Constantinople in 381. It's uncontroversial. You can look it up this afternoon on Wikipedia, read all about it. Its summary of the gospel is crystal clear. It is exactly what you believe. But if I were to ask you to recite it with me this morning, you probably wouldn't know it. And if I invited you to read it, you'd be good until we got to the last section, which begins like this. And we believe in one holy Catholic and apostolic church. And I could, work you, I could work through it with you. I could explain to you what it means that the church is holy, that we are a people of God's own nation, a kingdom of priests and a holy nation set apart to the glory of God. I could explain to you what we mean by Catholic, little c, that the church is one church universal of all people in all places for all time, the universal church. I could explain to you what it means that we are apostolic, and that we do what we do when we gather together because it's what we've received from that first generation of Christians who knew the Lord personally and received from Him the standard of faith that they faithfully passed on to Christians in the next generation who faithfully passed on the faith once delivered to all the saints to the next generation in an unbroken line to 1939 when a group of Christians started this church, Central Baptist Church of Luling, Texas. But the one I struggle with is the very first one four marks of the church, that there is one church. One church. That's easy to say in the fourth century when the whole goal of the First Council of Constantinople was to set up clear boundaries between who was in the church and who was out of the church. The Nicene Creed is beautiful in its statement of Christian faith, but you should read what they tacked on the end, a series of anathemas. If anyone denies these statements, they are accursed. It's like four or five anathemas that they pronounce. So they're making clear divisions between who's in the church and who's out of the church. They had clear convictional commonality from one place to the next. It didn't matter if you were in Rome or Athens or Corinth. You believed the same thing. You believed this standard of doctrine. They had similar worship styles. Their liturgy was common. And they had an increasingly hierarchical and unified church structure that eventually had the pastor of Rome at the top. But you look at church today, and it's not like that. There are hundreds of thousands of churches in America. There are 44,000 Southern Baptist churches, each with their own backgrounds, their own worship styles and culture, their own tax-exempt ID number. You know, in what sense are we one church? There are hundreds of denominations each distinct for genuine doctrinal differences. We're not talking about little stuff. We're talking about who's the appropriate person to be baptized and what does it mean to be a member of a church. 
In what sense are, is there one church? I mean, even if you just took up the Luling Newsboy, come out this Thursday, you open it up towards the, the back, the, maybe the last page, and you see the church directory. A new resident to Luling, Texas, has about 50 churches to choose from. So, I get that the Nicene Creed is the Christian mainstream for 1,500 years. But something about that last line, one holy Catholic and apostolic church, causes most of us to pause. What does it mean that there's one church? And I wish I had all the answers for that. I wish I knew the secret to Christian unity and how all these churches could get together again. I wish I knew what that would look like, and I trust that someday in heaven it'll all be clear, and there will be just one people of God. There's not going to be a Baptist section, a Methodist section, a Catholic section. We're going to be the people of God gathered around his throne forever. But what do we do here while we're here? And I don't have a good answer for that. I think all I can suggest, and what I want to suggest to you this morning, is that you and I can't control the big picture 100,000 churches, we're all different and divided, whatever. But we can control what happens here at this church. That we can be one church here. Because here's the deal. God is glorified when the church is unified. I think that's my favorite sermon in a sentence I've ever written. I want you to say it with me. Can you repeat this? God is glorified when the church is unified. Do you believe that? Good. Okay. Amen. Well, then I'll, you're not going to uh, have too many quarrels with me this morning, I hope. But I'm going to be out of town next week, so if you do, maybe you'll forget about them over the next couple of weeks. So open with me to Romans 15. We're going to read verses 1 through 6. And I want to show you why God is glorified when the church is unified and how people are supposed to get there. So here we are, Romans 15. Are you there? Good. Okay. Well, let's read it. Now, we who are strong ought to bear the weaknesses of those without strength and not just please ourselves. Each of us is to please his neighbor for his good, to his edification. For even Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. For whatever was written in earlier times was written for our instruction, so that through perseverance and the encouragement of the Scriptures, we might have hope. Now, may the God who gives perseverance and encouragement Grant you to be of the same mind with one another, according to Christ Jesus, so that with one accord you may, with one voice, glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, if this is your first time with us, um, our typical pattern is we go through books of the Bible. And since we've just got a couple of weeks before we kick off our Mark series in uh, three weeks, uh, we're just dipping in. And so I want to give all of us a little bit of background about Romans 15. And we'll just start with the early church. And when Jesus ascended into heaven, he left his 11 apostles to take the gospel to the ends of the earth. He says at the end of Matthew 28, um, go into all the world, preaching the gospel, making disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and teaching them to observe everything I commanded you. And like good disciples, they obeyed Jesus completely. They went everywhere preaching the gospel. And as they did, he honored his promise to build his church. And whether they were in Antioch or Joppa or Rome or Corinth or wherever they went, people responded and trusted in Jesus and committed to live for him. Because of that, the early church was a diverse movement. 
People from all different kind of backgrounds, languages, religious contexts, all kind of people being smashed into one new thing called the church. And among all that diversity, you're bound to find division. And that's what happened. Uh, Throughout the New Testament, the constant refrain is the need for the church to be united. Um, Especially in the Apostle Paul's letters, this this comes through in just like crystal clear language. He says in Galatians 3.28, There is neither Jew nor Gentile, slave nor free, male nor female, but you are all one in Christ Jesus. He's obliterating the normal divisions and forcing them to recognize their unity in Christ. He says in Ephesians chapter 4 that we're to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bonds of peace. This is just a fact of it. In a diverse movement of people, you're bound to have divisions, but Christians are called to overcome those divisions because God is glorified when the church is unified. And this was particularly the case at the church in Rome. Uh, Rome is, you know, the capital of the Roman Empire, a cosmopolitan place. People from all over the ancient world came there for a season or moved there permanently, and they're blending their cultures. And in the Roman church, the main two cultures of Jew and Gentile collided, and there's this constant friction. He talks about it in chapters 14 and 15 that kind of mirror what he talks about with the people in Corinth in 1 Corinthians 8 through 10. But the division between Jew and Gentile really came to a head over two common practices that the Jews had brought with them to faith in Christ. One was their observance of the Sabbath day, and the other was their commitment to the dietary laws that God had given his people through Moses. And so in this church in Rome, you had two groups. Paul calls them in, actually look at, if you still got your Bible open, look with me in verse, uh, chapter 14, verse 1. We'll just hear how Paul talks about it. Romans 14.1, he says to that church, he says, Except the one who's weak in faith, but not for the purpose of passing judgment on his opinions. One person has faith that he may eat all things, but he who is weak eats vegetables only. The one who eats is not to regard with contempt the one who does not eat, and the one who does not eat is not to judge the one who eats, for God has accepted him. Now, the issue appears to be that the Jews present in the Roman church were still committed to obeying the Old Testament dietary laws, which told them they couldn't eat meat that had been butchered in a specific way. They had to eat meat that had been butchered according to the laws, and they couldn't eat pork. And the Romans loved their bacon. And so you can imagine you have two groups in a church, one group totally committed to abstaining from meat altogether, either because they couldn't find a butcher who could do it in the right way, or because all they could get their hands on at the time was pork. And so they ended up adopting a vegetarian lifestyle. And on the other side, you have a group of people who feel that not having that Jewish background, there's no need for them to give up their bacon or their pork chops, that they can eat whatever they want because they know all things are clean in Christ. In fact, that's Paul's own perspective. He says in chapter 14, verse 14, I know and am convinced in the Lord that nothing is unclean in itself. So the challenge then for the Apostle Paul, who's writing from a long way away, trying to speak some encouragement and direction into this church, is how do you get a church that is fundamentally divided over something as basic as what's appropriate to eat or not to come together as one church? If God's glorified, when the church is unified, they got to figure it out. And so he tells them in chapter 15 
how they are to come together. He gives them the expectation of mutual sacrifice. And so this is what he says, verses 1 and 2. We'll read them again. We who are strong ought to bear the weaknesses of those without strength and not just please ourselves. Each of us is to please his neighbor for his good to his edification. See, Christians are called to mutual sacrifice. That's the only way the church can be unified. And I love how he enters into it in verse 1. He says, we who are strong. Paul lumps himself in with these people who are strong in faith and know that it's perfectly appropriate to eat pork or whatever it is, meat in general. He knows it's fine, but that doesn't give him a free pass to ignore the people in the church who feel differently. Instead, those who are strong are called to bear the weaknesses of those without strength. Or your Bible may say, to bear with the failings of the weak. And this word bear is essential. Because when we come to differences with people in our church, we're likely to do two things. We'll tolerate their differences. Or you might put it, I'm willing to put up with it. But eventually... You can't take it anymore. You can't bear it any longer. And those things come to a head. But Paul doesn't say tolerate the failings of the weak. And he doesn't say put up with the failings of the weak. He says bear the failings of the weak. Most scholars like to slip in this idea that what Paul is calling the strong, those who believe it's totally fine to eat meat, what he's calling them to do is to shoulder the burdens that those who are weak in faith have to bear. It's the same word Paul uses in Galatians 6 when he says to bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. See, most of us would put up with them, tolerate them, but think that we're doing people a favor. After all, we want to eat meat sacrificed to idols. We have no issue with that. We, we know that there are no such thing as idols, is what Paul says in 1 Corinthians. We want to eat our bacon. We want to eat our pork. And we don't want to have to adjust our lifestyle down to them. But Paul says that every Christian is called to mutual sacrifice, and that includes the people who are strong. But he takes this specific principle in verse 1, and he expands it to the general. And he says, each of us is to love his neighbor for his own good, or to please his neighbor for his own good, to his edification. See, this is a universal expectation. It's not just the strong coming down to the weak, but every Christian is expected to please his neighbor for his own good. And I think this language of neighbor is instructive. You know, Paul could have said, please your brother for his own good, or please your sister for his own good, or please other Christians for their own good. But he slips into the language that Jesus uses. Please your neighbor. Neighbor. Jesus says when he's asked what are the most important commandments, the first is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. The second one's like it, to love your neighbor as yourself. And Paul says in Galatians 5.14 that the entire law is summed up in this statement. Love your neighbor as yourself. And so when Paul starts to think about a church divided over something as basic as what you're allowed to eat, he says the only way you're going to get unified is not by forcing people with weak consciences to come up here and eat bacon. And it's not just for strong people to go off on their own and do what they want to do. It's by everybody mutually sacrificing to build each other up, to have a bigger picture in mind than what's in it for me. 
And so he goes on to talk about the example that Christ gives us of this mutual sacrifice. That Christ provides an example, a model, and motivation to sacrificing in this way. He says in verses 3 and 4, Even Christ did not please himself, but as it's written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. You know, if there was anybody who ever lived who had the right to demand his own way, it was Jesus. It was Jesus. He could have told everybody, hey, you don't know what you're about. I'm going to do what I want to do. But instead, Paul says, he didn't please himself. Instead, the reproaches of the, those who reproached you fell on me. Paul quotes from Psalm 69, which is like, along with Psalm 2 and Psalm 110, one of the most commonly cited psalms in the entire New Testament. It seems like the, the apostles, as they read the psalms, that was their prayer book, they, their song book, they read it, and they started to get insight by the Holy Spirit's inspiration that these psalms were deeper than what they just said on the surface. Psalm 69 talks about a worshiper who's being mocked by his friends for his faithfulness and loyalty to God. And he says in Psalm 69.9, those who've insulted you or those who've reproached you have fallen on me. Because he understands that the problem with the mockers is, is not just that they're mocking him, but they're mocking God. And because they're mocking God, they're mocking those who stand with him. And of course, that was the case for Jesus. Jesus was completely committed to God's way. Lived a life of perfect obedience, never straying from the left or to the right, but always committed wholly to doing what his Father commanded him to do. And because of that, people hated him. You know, he could have called down fire from heaven right there in the moment. Could have called angels to wipe people out. But instead, he lived a perfect life of obedience so that at the end of it all, he could willingly offer himself up as a sacrifice for sinners like me and you. So when Paul says, even Christ didn't please himself, that's kind of an understatement, wouldn't you say? Yeah, no, he didn't please himself. In fact, he willingly gave himself up for our sins. It's what Paul says in Philippians 2, that though he existed in the form of God, he did not count equality with God as a thing to be grasped, but he made himself nothing, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in the likeness of men, he became obedient, obedient even to the point of death on the cross. That's what Paul's talking about. He didn't please himself. The eternal Son of God, who John says was in the beginning with God and was God, willingly exchanged the glory of heaven to enter into our broken existence because he loves us, right? That the strong didn't please himself, but came down for the weak, that he exchanged his riches for our poverty so that in him we might become rich. This is who Jesus is. That's why Isaiah in Isaiah 53 looks through the mist of time and sees him, and he says, we all thought that he was being afflicted by God for his own sins, but turns out he bore our sorrows and carried our shame. That's who Jesus is. He's bearing our sins, just like the old goats and the Old Old Testament sacrifices. That's why I like what the old New Jersey theologian Charles Hodge said. He said that Jesus' self-sacrifice is a model and motivation to our sacrifice for others. I mean, when when you really pause and you think about what Jesus has done for you, it changes everything. It's what happens when kids go to camp. You know, they, they come to church week in and week out, and they have to listen to the preacher and the Sunday school teachers, and their mom and dad are always talking to them about church. But when they go to camp, and they're outside of their routine, they hear that Jesus loves them for the first time. 
It changes everything. Y'all know, y'all have been there. Y'all have done that. You know what it's all about. It's what John talked about in 1 John 4. Uh, if you want to turn there, you can. 1 John 4, verse 7. He says, Beloved, let us love one another. For love is from God, and everyone who knows God is born of God. Everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. The one who doesn't love doesn't know God, for God is love. And this is what I want you to hear, verses 9 through 11. By this the love of God was manifested to us, that God has sent His only begotten Son into the world, so that we might live through Him. In this is love, not that we've loved God, but that He loved us and sent His own Son to be the atoning sacrifice for our sins. That's what we're talking about. When we talk about love and Jesus not pleasing Himself and being willing to share the, bear the reproaches of God, what we're talking about is Jesus Christ, the eternal Son of God, taking on human flesh to die for our sins. That changes everything when you open your eyes to it. But then verse 11, Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. So, God is glorified when the church is unified, and every Christian is called to mutual sacrifice. And we have an example, a model, and a motivation to it when we look clearly at Jesus. The Son of God is willing to leave heaven to bear my sin. Surely I can bear with the weaknesses of my brother and sister. Surely I can lay down my rights to prefer one another, to forgive as he forgave. I can do that if he's willing to do that for me. And after Paul gives the example, he quickly turns to the result. What happens when a church full of people willingly lays down their rights to serve the people around them, to bear their burdens, to bear with their failings? What's the result? Look at what verses 5 and 6. It says, May the God who gives perseverance and encouragement grant you to be of the same mind with one another, according to Christ Jesus, so that with one accord you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. When we start to think about Jesus and the sacrifice He's made for us, when we open our eyes to see the Scriptures, which tell us everything we need for life and godliness, God starts to work by His Spirit. And He starts to change us. He starts to grant to us that we would be of the same mind and of one accord, so that with one voice we could glorify Him. You know, you think about this. I love this language of, of one mind, of one heart, and of one voice. Because back in chapter 12, and we're going to look at chapter 12 in two weeks, Paul says that we are each members of one body, the body of Christ. And we belong to each other. We're, we're here for each other's good, to build each other up. Each of us is important. And we all know that body imagery language, you know, that the church is the body of Christ, and we talk about it all the time. But we usually do so to emphasize, as I'm going to do in two weeks, the importance of every member of that body. But there is a corporate dimension to the body of Christ, that this body is supposed to have one mind and one heart and one mouth, because God's glorified when the church is unified. And so Paul says that God grants to us that we'd have the same mind toward one another. In Greek, it literally means that we'd think the same towards each other. That we'd go from me to we. It's not about my preferences, not about whether I want to eat meat or whether you want to eat vegetables or whether we're allowed to uh, cut our grass on Sunday or whether we're not allowed to cut our grass on Sunday. It's not about that. It's about how are we together the body 
of Christ. We have one mind thinking the same thing. We're supposed to have one heart. or We're supposed to be in one accord. You know, that's what they said the apostles' favorite uh, car was, was, was the Honda. Because in Acts 2, it says they, they were all in one mind and in one accord. But you, but you know what that means, right? That they're in this together. We're in this together. They sacrificed their own possessions for those who had need. They were knit together. They were one body they were a corporate reality, not a bunch of isolated individuals showing up to sit in these eight walls every Sunday. They were the people of God. They were the body of Christ. They were one church, and they felt that. When they got down on their knees and laid on their faces to pray, they had the sense that they weren't praying alone to God, but that they were praying with other people. They weren't saying, God, help me. They were saying, God, help us. We're your people. They're speaking in the plural that's what it means to have one heart, to feel the same towards each other, to be knit together, to be in this together. And the result is that they'd speak with one voice. With one voice, they would glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. That the body of Christ, together. I, I talk about singing, I think now almost every week. And I'm doing that on purpose because this verse. It's always in the back of my mind. Now, you think about what this sounds like. You've all maybe seen the choirs, or you've watched them on YouTube, or the barbershop quartet. How each person in the choir, each part in the music, the alto, the tenor, the bass, the soprano, they have their own note to sing. But they're all singing the same song. And though they're diverse individuals with their own vocal ranges, Somehow those things blend together in beautiful harmony so that a choir, I believe, is one of the most powerful things on the face of the earth. Uh, you, you get a big old choir up there singing in, in awesome harmony, and man, uh, you get chill bumps. It's incredible. And it's apparently what God likes, because in heaven, there's choirs of angels singing all the time. But we don't have to be in a choir to praise God with one voice. Here we are on Sunday mornings singing songs we barely know. I mean, if Mike doesn't know them, y'all know we don't know them. We're trying to figure it out as we go. Like, what song is this? How does the melody go? But somehow, in God's perfect wisdom, He hears us each individually, and He hears us as a whole. He says, man, my church is singing to me praises this morning, and it sounds beautiful. And then you take another step back, and you say that actions speak louder than words. And it's not just about singing together, but it's about how our lives mesh together in a beautiful harmony so that you could have in one church people who are Jewish and people who are Gentile, people who are slaves and people who are free, people who are men and people who are women. But in Christ, they're one, one church. Because God is glorified when the church is unified, and the church is unified when we mutually sacrifice for one another. That's the only way it works. And so I just want to encourage you, as your pastor, as your friend, as your brother in Christ, to acknowledge with me that we are in a special season in the life of our church. Uh, none of us could have anticipated it. None of us could have produced it. God is at work at CBC. And when God starts to work, things happen. You baptize 11 people in 11 weeks. 
You stand up at a members meeting on a Wednesday night and you try to run through all the names of people who are joining the church and people remind you, oh, you're forgetting them. You're forgetting them. And next thing you know, 19 new members are joining your church. You can't accomplish that in human effort. Only God can do it. And when that happens, you can be certain that those new people who come in bring all sorts of background stuff with them. You have people who were brought up in the church and people who weren't. And there's going to be division because diversity always brings division. But if we want to glorify God, we better do our best to be unified. And the only way we can do that is by mutually sacrificing for one another. That's it. That's all there is. And think about what that would say to the world. If a group of people could accomplish that, a world that's divided by politics and by race and by philosophies and by preferences and by cultures and language and nationalities, a whole world divided up into all these neat little boxes, and yet here's one church full of people from every nation, tribe, and language, people who wouldn't normally be seen together, but here they are praising God with one voice like a beautiful angelic choir. That's the only way it'll happen. And when it happens... It'll turn the world upside down, just like the early church did. And so I encourage you folks, as we see God's work among us, to anticipate and expect tension and division, little rough edges. You know, I've got them, you've got them, but we have a clear roadmap for how to handle them. That the strong ought to bear with the failings of the weak and not please themselves. Let each of us please his neighbor for his own good to build them up. That's the answer. And so I would ask you to think about this. When you sense tension between yourself and another person, maybe it's your husband or your wife, or maybe it's your kids, or maybe it's the person across the Sunday school table, the person who sits in front of you at church, when you feel some tension boiling up within yourself, how do you respond? There's two ways. One, some variation of this. They need to change. Right. They need to change. How, put it however you want. You could pray for them. Lord, I hope you've helped them figure out what they're doing wrong, or however you want to couch it. But the, the normal way most people do it is they're the problem, not me. If they could just figure it out, it'd be easier. But that's not what Paul tells us. He doesn't say, throw stones, tell them to change, gently nudge them, you know, however you want. No, he says to sacrifice for their good. He says to look for an opportunity. How, how can I help? How can I meet them where they are? How can I willingly lay down my desire for X, Y, Z so that I can meet this brother or sister where they are? That's the goal. How do we mutually sacrifice so the church can be unified? Because when the church is unified, God is glorified. If we can get there, and we can live it out, then one holy, Catholic, apostolic church won't just be a tagline at the end of a dusty old creed, but it'll be the living, breathing reality of our church in Luling, Texas, and everybody will see it. God will get the glory. Will you all pray with me?